This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello everybody and welcome to the first ever Liverpool.com podcast. If you are a fan of Liverpool.com, thank you for coming over to the podcast and and, uh, listening to it or even on YouTube and and having a watch. If you're not a fan of Liverpool.com, then you've missed out for the past 12 months, but we're really uh, glad to have you on board on our journey. I'm Christian Walsh, I am the uh, the host for today and with me are Liverpool.com writers Joel Rabinovitz, Oliver Connolly and Dan Morgan. How are we gentlemen? Doing good. It was doing great until we had the pre-game issues. Yeah, just glad to finally get going. <laughs> yeah, it's always, it's always. No one, no one actually writes a sort of a, a things not to do in, on the, your first ever podcast. But uh, what you shouldn't do is is reveal the fact that Dan Morgan um, had so many technical issues. We should have actually started recording this half an hour ago. Um, and what we also I'm shouldn't say is doing podcasts since 2017. By the way, without without one glitch ever. <laughs> It was his first Liverpool.com one, and uh, the whole world just down. So yeah, it might be a bit of an omen now. <laughs> uh, hopefully not. Hopefully not. We uh, so that you listen to this uh, on the Blood Red channel. Uh, Liverpool.com is a you know part of, but not you know independent to uh, the, the Liverpool Echo. Um, so it's it's a completely different sort of podcast to Blood Red, completely different one to analyse Anfield, uh, but hopefully you will enjoy it um, and, and we'll sort of proceed. Uh, so first and foremost, we're going to have a little look at what's in the news this week uh, and even over the past 24 hours. Um, the first thing that I want to touch upon, gents, is uh, Timo Werner. Now, it feels like we've spoken, well, certainly written a lot about him. Uh, over the past two, three weeks, certainly since he went to Chelsea. But he's been in the news uh, over the past 24 hours. Uh, Bild broke the story that he wasn't going to play for RB Leipzig in the Champions League, uh, and that has since been confirmed by the Telegraph's Matt Law. Uh, Joel, is, does this sort of make you feel like it's a good thing Liverpool didn't get him, or is this just another way of us telling ourselves it's all right, we didn't really want him anyway? Probably a little bit more of a latter. I think it's funny with players who try and kind of, yeah, I suppose force their way out in in ways that you would say it is not doesn't reflect that well on him, I don't think. But then when it's a player that we want and we do get them, you sort of find it easier to kind of make excuses for it. Like I remember when... Order Van Dyke was stuff happening in the summer of 2017, and I think he refused to play in sort of pre-season friendlies for Southampton. Um, and yeah, so when you you want the player, you're sort of more willing to kind of yeah accept that kind of behaviour because it it paves the way for what you want to see happen. Obviously, Liverpool being on the other side of it with Coutinho, with the kind of questionable back injury he had at the start of that season. Um, so I think yeah, with Werner, it's quite surprising. I think he's not actually guaranteed to be playing Champions League football next season yet. I think that's kind of something that's been glossed over in this whole thing that, yeah, Chelsea, it wouldn't surprise you if they got third or fourth, but then it wouldn't surprise you because of how condensed that part of the table is. If they don't come out of this restart that well, they slip down to kind of fifth, sixth or seventh. Um, so, yeah, for him to kind of pass up the opportunity to play in a quarterfinal is quite surprising. Um, and, yeah, I don't think... I don't think it reflects that well on him, but obviously he's, he's quite keen to push it through as soon as possible. It's a little bit mad maybe, Ollie, because Leipzig are probably the biggest dark horse in the Champions League still, the mm-hmm. fruits of the quarterfinals. Um, you're going to write, um, as we're speaking, you're writing about the whole 
Champions League format um, in this sort of COVID-19 um, era, if you will. You know, sort of it, it replicates a World Cup. Um, so you you know you wouldn't you wouldn't be surprised if they could shock Man City or PSG in in a, in a ninety minute game. It seems a little bit of a weird one from him, doesn't it? It's a little bit. I, I'm actually surprised people are so surprised. I mean, how long of a gap is there going to be bef- between the Champions League final date and then what will be the restart of the next Premier League season? We don't even quite know the you know the final details on that. And so for him to jeopardize or have anything that would possibly jeopardize this massive move he's going to make. And he's, he's basically playing the percentages of Leipzig most likely aren't going to go on and win the Champions League. And so why would I even play an extra 180 minutes or whatever it's going to be um, if I don't have to? So I, I, I get it from him. To me, it's like one of those classic labour versus management things. And it's always funny that people seem to side with management, even though almost everyone watching is labour. Uh, if you had this opportunity for this new contract and you had a couple of weeks left with your fir- current company, but you're making this massive move, you'd probably be like, well, why do I need to go and do extra work on that, like overtime, basically, um, if I don't actually have to because the transfer can be set for this spe- you know, specific date. Yeah, I remember not going in on my final day at a previous company as well. So maybe, maybe, maybe not the wages were the same. Um, but I made sure that I left the laptop the day before the new final day, just so I, just so I had an excuse. Shouldn't really admit that, should I? Uh, Dan, we, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Werner, you know, but also I want to sort of weave it in, into Mohamed Salah. He's, he was 28 on Monday. Um, obviously, the people would have potentially played together for Liverpool if, if, if a move would have happened. I suppose first and foremost, I mean, you, you wrote yesterday about, uh, you know, Salah and, and sort of the, the phenomenon that he is. Do you feel like little things like this with what Werner does, and, and by all accounts, you know, Klopp was sold on him, spoke to him, in, you know, not in person, but over a Zoom call, they were all very happy with him. Um, is Does this sort of thing maybe say to Klopp, well, do you know what, actually, I'm happy with the, with the guys I've got, I'm happy with the hand I've been dealt here, because that's not necessarily the thing I want to do. Joel brings up Van Dijk, and, and I think that's a fair point, but... I don't think he necessarily. He certainly didn't refuse to play a, a you know, a sort of a competitive full-time fixture for for Southampton. Uh, this feels like a real big step, and maybe something where Klopp really sort of has that infamous rule of of no idiots to paraphrase it. Um, you know, this is the sort of thing where he goes, "Well, I've got Salah. He's a nice fella, and he's football as well." Yeah, I mean, I don't want to um, sort of come across as a bit holier than now with this as as I don't with, with many things Liverpool related um, because it's very easy to do so but it does feel very you know early Abramovich Chelsea this it feels very Bruce Buck behind the scenes um, sort of dictating um, what you would call quite strategic indirect um, ways of, of finding finding advantages that aren't always on the pitch and um, you know that's not to disparage the, the, the character of Tim O'Reilly in any way because none of us know him. And I think that's very important to say. And there's a, you know, we can talk about reasons why Liverpool didn't sign him, but there's obviously a reason Liverpool did want to sign him. And I'm sure that due diligence in terms of character and what's he like and what does he do will all have been looked at. In terms of Salah, you know, I think the thing with Liverpool's squad, not just the front three, is that They've got a, they've got an abundance of individuals who can be looked up to at any one time as role models for their own nation, for their own religion, for their own demographic. And I think anyone 
sort of aspiring to that is good first and foremost, but it's very hard to do. You know, when you've got sort of the precedent being set by African footballers such as Salah and Sadio Mane, then to sort of, I don't think it'd be fair to put any kind of that responsibility on anyone else and, and not the players themselves because it's not something they do to say, oh, look at me. It's just the nature in which they've sort of taken their careers and the responsibility they have with them. And and I think all of it just sort of comes into this this culmination of what's Yeah, Tim O'Brien is probably an all right lad. He's probably being advised by Chelsea and then his own advisors to, to take this course of action. And it's been weighed up by everyone that this is right for the move to Stamford Bridge. And what that move looks like, we just have to sit back and watch now and and sort of move on from, you know, we've been joking about about it on the site, haven't we? Every day on meetings talking about how we're sick of seeing Timo Werner's name and, <laughs> and and sort of downloading his picture every day and stuff like that. Um, and There's only so many shots of him in a Leipzig shirt. Yeah. Not, I found a cracker of him in a Germany kit the other week. Might be my greatest achievement in the last 12 months, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, I think... There's no, there's no better way to sharpen the focus than going and win the Premier League, to be honest. Really interestingly, actually, I mean, we, we put a little poll up on uh, Liverpool.com's uh, Twitter, which is at Liverpool.com underscore, and we sort of asked, you know, what topics do you want us to discuss on our first podcast today? Um, and, and sort of, spoiler alert, we were going to talk about all of them anyway, but we were just really interested to see what people were interested in. 4% said Timo Werner, which yeah, is when we sort of... Everyone, everyone, I think everyone has zoned out on him. I think we see that from a analytical point of view, um, you know, Google Trends and not to pull back the curtain too much, but we, we have these little levers we can pull and see what fans are actually interested in. Timo Vera is very much a stock is going down with Liverpool fans. I think people are starting to accept it. Um, but people are still on the, the, the Salah bandwagon, Dan, and I'll sort of throw it back to you as one of the two people on this podcast aged 28 or above. Um I'm not going to reveal who the other one is, but um, <laughs> <laughs> it's not hard to guess. Um, what do you, what do you feel is next for, for Salah? Do you think he's he's hitting his prime? Do you think it's before his prime, after his prime? Where where, where are we at with with a 28 year old Mo Salah? I think it all do us all a bit of good to just stop and, and look at the fact that he's 28, and I think that. Primes can come in different senses, you know, centre-backs especially, keepers, different different times, um, as the amount of football players had, for example. Um, I wonder if there's a, just as a side note, I wonder if there's a look back at this period in the next few years as a, as a blessing to some players' careers, that they've had three months off that they would not ordinarily get. You know, you think of Firmino would have, have played this summer, you know, you would have had AFCON, we're hoping that's getting pushed back. It looks like it will, but we're hoping it will. Um, and, you know, you sort of see that that, that prolonging of a, of a player's career maybe through this period. But that's where Salah sort of, for me, comes into his own. And that's where I think you do have to compare him to your, your elites, your Messi's and Ronaldo's, because he's never injured. And I'm touching wood saying this, but is there's a reason he's in phenomenal condition. And it's because he has worked unbelievably hard on physical strength and core strength and the ability to to recover um, and understand his body through games of football and, and I think that's what's taken him to the next level at Liverpool you know there was 
wasn't that long ago when he signed for Liverpool and people were saying he was back up for Sadio Mane. And people came in and seen, you know, 40 goals in a season as being purely ability-based. A lot of it was down to what he did to himself physically and how he prepared himself physically. So I think when we're talking about prime, you know, what I wrote in the piece yesterday was if you were to, to look at Mohamed Salah now as, as the player he is, but a player who signed for Barcelona in 2017 and not Liverpool, then by God, you'd be wishing that you had him first and foremost. But secondly, you'd be saying Barcelona are boxed for the next four years. They are absolutely boxed. And I think that's where we have to start having a bit of a, a rethink as to how we look at Salah because there's, there seems to be a very quick um, notion to, to move to to selling him or moving him on or, or a perception that he wants to move on. I think we should be building a team around him and Sadio Mane for the next four years. And that's not to disparage Roberto Firmino in any way. But I think they are Liverpool's two um, physical and technical key attributes and I think that they should be the players who Liverpool prioritise in terms of nailing down, keeping fit and ensuring that they stay on top of the game. You, you said let's forget the fact that he's 28 um, and we are going to but my next question is predicated on that so let's remember that he's 28 for a moment. Um, likewise Sadio Mane, likewise Roberto Firmino, they're all 28 now but this isn't a bad point, this is uh, a good point for them. You look at some of the world's best strikers now, and you've got Robert Lewandowski, who's over 30. You've got mm-hmm. Lionel Messi, who's obviously a, an absolute freak. Likewise, Ronaldo, but they're 33 and, and 35, respectively. Um, you, you look at some of the, the you know, the, the, the players, Thomas Muller, you know, I think he's, he's 30 years of age as well. It's not this situation anymore where 24, 25 is, is, is kind of regarded as a peak, is it, Ollie, in terms of, we, I think, as Liverpool have always had Owen, and Torres and Fowler, and it felt like their peak sort of came when they were 20, you know, I mean, for Fowler, it was arguably when he was 21, 22, or when it was 22, 23, Torres maybe 25, 26. But by the time they all hit 28, they're either not of the club or they're very much on, on the way out. Liverpool have probably got to recondition themselves here, both as supporters and maybe as a club, to say 28 isn't absolutely that old anymore not with the sports science around and also with, with what strikers can do nowadays when they're well into the 30s. Yeah, I think a lot of it stems from the fact that so much of his game is predicated on the electric pace. I think people worry, will that slip at some point? And guys just don't decline like that as much anymore. And if you look at his five-year his five-year non-league, uh, league, sorry, uh, non-penalty goal stretch, which is about like someone in the, the prime of their career, what were they, their, their absolute apex? It stands at 92 right now if you take 2015 to 2020, which is 11th all time in this kind of modern era of across all of Europe's top leagues. So if he just keeps up his regular rate, say 22 goals a year, 20 for the next couple, he's gonna. it's just going to be him, Lewandowski and Messi. That's it. Even Ronaldo doesn't have a run like this of non-penalty league goals. Just now, he's ahead of the likes of Jamie Vardy and Chiro Mobile and Neymar and Bale in just his Liverpool run. So what we're witnessing, I was thinking about this when we, when I knew we were doing this, I went back and ripped through a bunch of his goals from the last two seasons. He doesn't really have like a one-off style of finish, which I think is what's going to let this thing go, go and go and go. There's a lot of the, the dinks and stuff and there's a lot of placing the ball in the net, but it's not like it's this one style that we always talk about where Firmino drops out, there's the spacing behind the two of them dying behind. It's not just that, there's all different kind of finishes. Dan spoke about the strength and the United goal and the Watford goal and that stuff is not just going to evaporate in the next 24 months. So I think that 
in terms of looking for the future, they absolutely need to do some kind of planning. And with just the, the volume of football that's going to come down, the resetting of the calendar, it would be um, improper for them to not try and find some fresh legs to spell them. But I don't see why this peak wouldn't last for at least another two, three years. I was watching that United goal yesterday, actually, and um, I didn't I didn't realise at the time, but it was Daniel James who was trying to chase him. <laughs> he was, you know, an absolute 100-metre sprinter. Um, and, you know, it's basically two, two quick lads sort of in a foot race. Yeah. Um, but what he's got and Daniel James hasn't at this point in his career is, is that strength and, and that sort of body position. It was it was incredible. Uh just really quickly on on, on Salah, um, and then we'll, we'll move on slightly to, to, to a one of his former teammates. Um what's going through Dejan Lovren's head? <laughs> because he must, he, he must know it's coming to an end soon. Yeah, it's one of like those those sort of unexpected. I think we all have a kind of an assumption of the players that will be friends. You all know that like Henderson and Alana are good mates, Milner as well, Robertson and Trent obviously have their thing going on. And I think there's a kind of there's a funny dynamic there because I think Lovren has seen by many as sort of this I don't want to be too harsh, but not quite um a joke figure as such. But you know what I mean? He's kind of towards the lower end of a popularity scale amongst the <laughs> Liverpool fan base and then Salah's right there. And Salah's right at the other end and knows, yeah, whenever you see Liverpool doing the inside Anfield, the training clips on Instagram, they're always kind of making jokes about buying each other coffee and the fact that Salah doesn't pay for Lovren's coffee or whatever. And yeah, it's quite funny. I remember um, remember Moreno was there as well. He was another one who sort of like the fans weren't that keen on, but then he was obviously very close friends with the likes of Coutinho and Lucas and Firmino. So it's, it's funny you see like the kind of, the dynamics there, but like the ability of a player obviously has no kind of yeah impact on kind of the relationship they have in the squad. Um, so yeah, I, I expect Lovren. This is probably the last we'll see of him in these next nine games. Um, he wanted to leave last summer, didn't he? And Klopp basically told him, "No, sorry, I want you for this season." And in fairness, he has he's done a job on a few games where we need him to. Um, so yeah, I'm sure I'm sure Mo would be devastated when that finally happens. Doesn't, I think it shows, uh, sorry, go on. doesn't he just feel right for one of those Chris Smalling, like he goes to Lazio or someone, and oh, people only ever see four games and he's all right. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, actually, Dejan wasn't, <laughs> no, it's a full centre-back. He wasn't the worst. It's like, nah, go watch the Watford game again. He's awful. We're, 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 we're in Europa League with, uh, with Shabia. <laughs> you know, that, that side of thing, you know, absolute hard man back, back in Spain. Um, I think it's, it's an elite mentality from, from Salah because I, I don't mind Lovren, but... You know, I, I don't think I could put up with that stick day in day out on social media. <laughs> I, I really, I really think I'd struggle. And fair play to Salah. It's also like, you know, like when you were in, in school and it was kind of like, you know, like sort of you'd have someone who, who tried to be your best mate and you, you, you didn't really want to be. It's just like, yeah, you know, just, just leave me alone. I'm, I'm sort of, you know, it's just that we, we, we take biology together. It's fine. You know what I mean? I'm not really your mate. We get the bus together. It's fine. It's, you know. <laughs> You're not coming to mind to sleep over. It just feels a little, I'd be very much like that. Um, so fair play to, to Mo Salah. I think it shows that he's a, he's a lovely fella to uh, to put up with Dejan and his, his incessant social media um, activity. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Just really, really quickly around Coutinho. Um, I mean, what is news? What isn't news around Philip Coutinho? I don't know. In reports in Spain are saying that Barcelona are, are pretty much ready to, to get rid. Um, I don't really think that's news. I think everybody knows that. I think the, the, the newsworthy bit 
if we are to believe it is that they, they would be willing to take around 40 million for him. Um, simple question to all three of you. Um, Philip Coutinho, 40 million, yes or no? No, not 40. By the way, that's a funny thing because Barcelona are flat out broke. I'm not sure the general public understands that they are. It's not like they just don't have money. They need like auditors because they are, have no cash. So to like start negotiating from a point of view of 40 million is laughable. It's like, no, you would take 11. If that, you know, whatever the number is we decide is what you will take to take that wage off your hands. Um, 40 to me, particularly when you have all that, all that leverage um, and just no one appears interested. Um, I think that's daft. I think some kind of low deal is the only thing that would make sense for one year because of just all the uncertainty and, and what have you, and then maybe spelling the front three. Um, but I, I, I don't think a permanent deal makes sense in, in any logic. No, not for me. I th from, from a different perspective, I think there's too much Liverpool water under the bridge. And I think if we look at what, what position he comes back into, I think we'd all agree sort of an eight and a half in a club system. So you have to then factor in, you know, your Naby Keiters, Takumi Minamino's, Curtis Jones of the world. And I'm sure there'll be people screaming at YouTube saying, well, we need as many good and quality options as possible. But I think we do have to factor these players and, and look at other priorities for us. I think there's too much water under that particular bridge for me. What's yeah, reckon, Joel? Broadly in agreement, I wouldn't take him for 40. I think if Liverpool are passing up on a 23 or 24 year old Timo Werner for 54 million or whatever it is, they're not going to be paying 40 million for. I think he turned 28 the other day, Coutinho. Yeah. Um, before all of this, I wouldn't have even entertained the conversation around him. I think now that we know Liverpool are probably not going to be making any real major permanent signings this summer, if there was somehow a way where we could get him on loan for a year with Barcelona paying most of his wages and he came in purely on a proviso that he's kind of effectively a handyman who'll do some games on the left-hand side as a sort of Mane deputy. He can do some games in attacking midfield in certain situations. I wouldn't be averse to it if the circumstances were right, but in terms of 40 million um, at this stage, I don't see it. OK, so where does he start next season? One word answers, please. China. Not... <laughs> <laughs> I've heard, I've heard, I've heard the worst shouts. Uh, AC Milan. AC Milan. I'm going to say he stays at Barca. I think. Oh, yeah. I'm, I think I'm going to go Newcastle. You know. Oh wow. <laughs> I think I'm going to go Newcastle. It's like the Asian Mutu of the Saudi era. Absolutely. Uh, the Rubinho can be the Rubinho. Be the Rubinho. Yeah. Just, oh, just a little less timber. Um, <laughs> Okay, and just finally in the news, uh, what we want to do with this segment every week is obviously we want to talk about Liverpool things, but we think it's important that we, you know, Liverpool.com as a website does this a lot, um, and we as writers like to do this as well, and it's it's looking at other things around the news and, and how it reflects on Liverpool to a degree, but just in general. Um, and, you know, Marcus Rashford, um, Manchester United striker, uh, England international, of course, um, released a, an open letter, if you will, um, Asking for, um, you know, I think it was 1.3 um, million school children in poverty to uh, to continue their uh, free meals. Um, our wonderful Conservative Party, and that is absolute sarcasm before anyone uh, <laughs> throws the laptop through the window, um, said no. And then they obviously got a little bit of a, a whiff of the public um, backlash on that and have now done a U-turn. Um, 
I think what this mainly says is 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 one, damn that Marcus Rashford is a is a really good fella. I think two, not only him but a lot of footballers are, are really good people. Uh, but also three, the, the the power at the moment that footballers have in, in this weird world that, that we're currently living in and and sort of how they can use their platform for change. Yeah, and I think it's it's a it's a fingers burnt scenario for for this government because we know that very early on into the lockdown in England that they see an open goal to to sort of deflect, which is something they've been very good at, onto footballers and by saying that they should be um, contributing more to the NHS um, and and basically seeing them as the stereotype that, that many did really and that they were you know they were young privileged uneducated um, men who didn't really care about anything else than than picking money up and playing playing football once a week and and i think that we've known for a while that 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 stereotype is wrong and it's been um ineducated and i think that there's been a there's been a, a sort of corporation wide strategy in, in mutant footballers over the years and not giving them the trust to go and campaign and, and, and use their voice for the things that they believe in. Um, and that in turn has, you know, devastated reputations of footballers that have had a lot of good to give and therefore, you know, that inevitably spills onto some fans and onto some terraces. And that's not me making excuses for any behaviour, by the way. But I think that this this legacy of lockdown i think will will almost now be defined by the fact that it, it is the time in where footballers stood up and had enough and and used their voice and marcus rashford is an absolute credit to to this country in that sense um and i think that to be honest he's another example of in this argument this government picking the wrong battle um because what they can't do with a, a premier league footballer is cast them off um, as a as a shadow minister or as another party with another agenda. They are young, educated, socially and diversely um, aware young men who have a huge ear, a huge platform and who have the attention of the nation and a lot of people who, who idolise them. So we've seen with America that Donald Trump's already fighting a losing battle in this sense and predictably he's fighting fire with fire. I think what you're seeing here is the Tory party backing down on that that sense of um, confrontation and, and, for me, quickly admitting defeat, which is surprising in one sense. But um, if it means that, you know, 200,000 young kids in this country are going to get school dinners and free school dinners, then it's welcoming. Um, and I think that we should, we should now be encouraging these footballers to use their own voice and not rely on somewhat tokenry um campaigns like kick it out which have never gone far enough in terms of acting on words um to do the actions that are required so we need to give these footballers their collective voice that they created to to take things forward for me and Ali, we've seen that a little bit in the nfl haven't we in terms of colin kaepernick and you know very recently roger goodell who's who's the nfl commissioner you know in a very sort of, I mean, you'll know this far better than I will, but it felt to me it was one of the first times really that 
that sport as a, as an organization has engaged with with the black lives matter movements obviously this is a different thing to what rashford's doing with, with free school uh, meals but it's the idea of you know politicizing things and and sort of fighting for what is right in society um if, if these players take a stand you know literally not literally obviously because they're taking a knee but mm-hmm. if they take a methodical stand against this sort of thing you know we, we've seen it in america and, and we might be able to see it in in the uk as well i would hope so i think what was so amazing about the rashford stuff me and dan were talking about this earlier is just the lack of defensiveness from 20 year olds when they came under attack from the government really early on as dan said trying to pass the book on something that had absolutely nothing to do with them pitting the classic nurses versus football players which is just unconscionable um and they didn't take the bait they said no we're not going to get down to that mud and have that fight with you i'm going to bring a real issue that i really care about that i've done all kinds of work on that i probably know more about than half of the people sat who are actually involved in making this decision um and was eloquent about it and got the job done um and it's really amazing what we're seeing all over the shop is just player empowerment people understanding like dan saying their own voices um and i couldn't welcome it more joel you wrote about marcus Rashford as well um it'd be nice to see when football is back to normal whenever that is and we've got fans you know whether they're socially distanced or not back at anfield it'd be nice if, if there was some sort of recognition and you hope you know both during that game but I suppose the wider point is, you know, when footballers were saying people maybe take a take a step back and realise that a lot of these people were, were fighting for the right causes. Definitely, yeah. I think that's something that obviously in the next few days, conversations are going to shift back towards actual football and what these players are doing on the pitch. People are going to be talking about Rashford's goals that he's scoring and what Henderson's doing for Liverpool and all the other players who've done things over this period. But I do think it's important that, yeah, we kind of, remember what they have done and and how they've stood up here and i think as well on the one hand you're absolutely right to praise them and it's a brilliant thing that rashford's doing but it's also it's the reflection of where we're at that you literally got a 22 year old professional sports who's basically telling his government what to do and to stop letting kids starve i mean i think if you saw that i don't know Serge Gnabry Havertz was having to do the same thing in Germany or German footballers are being told to fund their national health service. Um, I think it's also kind of a reflection of where we're at as a society in the country that they've had to do these things. Um, but again, that, they absolutely deserve all the recognition and I think it puts into such kind of perspective really. We're going to move back into kind of a world of rivalries and tribalism again to some degree. Um, but the fact that, you know, he's a Manchester United player is frankly irrelevant in in the context of this he's a young man who's standing up for what he believes in and doing something that again shouldn't be his responsibility to do um but the fact that it has within 24 hours of that letter going out has actually had the impact that he intended it to have and you've seen so many people supporting him from all over even outside of football people who probably don't even know who marcus rashford was and no interest in football really supporting that um is a great thing and like Dan said he's, he's a credit to United, but he's a credit to the Premier League and sort of English football as a collective. I did, I did plump for the signing, by the way. You just, did? Just <laughs> it's in the archives. It's in there's the archives. A piece, there's a piece somewhere on Liverpool.com about why we should sign Marcus Rashford, so just saying. He I, I would say also, he would do. I would say also, there's just Rashford is, is his own kind of situation and there's immense courage in what he did because he wasn't doing a campaign that was already at the forefront of the public consciousness. He stuck his head 
into the mainstream right-wing media bustle because if they just wanted to go on the attack it's really hard when you know it's kids not eating involved obviously but they are not above getting down in the mud to, to take this guy down so the the courage and bravery involved in that is astounding but with some of the other stuff and with what's coming now with black lives matter i really just i know that fortunately it's been discussed a lot real actionable stuff you know that the guy the pioneer colin kaepernick for all sports figures on this he did it he took the sacrifice that was courage it's not courage now to release a statement in your notepads and put it on twitter or even be a company like nike and, and get involved now courage was at the start now you have to come through with with some real actions and real weighty stuff not ju not just putting it out in the next couple of weeks because it's in the news really sitting down and thinking through what can we change systematically to to help football and to just help society as a whole so that's what was so brilliant about rashford's thing is that he was not getting involved in something that he was just joining on to a movement that was already in a way he was pioneering his way on a, on a topic that hopefully we see other football players when they're really interested and it's really meaningful to them and they have real life experience and, and it's 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 um you know it's in a thing that they really care about that we'll see them get involved in their community and on a national stage well said, Ollie, uh, and that is is what was in the news this week. Um, so we're going to move on a little bit. Um, we're going to basically have a different section every week, um, and we'd be really interested in your thoughts and what you'd like to hear us talk about. Um, you know, sort of, we, we're open for anything. So make sure you're always following us on Twitter and and at us at Liverpool.com underscore on our Facebook page as well. Just type in Liverpool.com. You can always send us a message on there. And obviously send any of our uh, writers on here a message as well uh but this week um for football's back actual tangible football i think i figured out um that we've written about 600 articles since football was suspended um between a core of four of us we've obviously got josh williams and david hughes who help out uh we've got a couple of other um people who, who, who've been really uh, helpful for us but um, you know, it's it's a pretty much a, it's been an incredible sort of nearly a hundred days since Liverpool's last football game, but with nine games to go, um, it was suspended. With Liverpool haven't played twenty nine. I thought we could just look at the Premier League season in general. Um, Liverpool's last nine games, and maybe we could round it off a little bit with a couple of our crazy predictions, hot takes, however you want to look at it, around uh, between now and, and the end of the season. So, I suppose the first thing for me, Joel, is when do you feel like Liverpool are going to lift this trophy and are you as excited as you would have been otherwise? Um, to answer the first one, I I think they'll do it in the first two games back. I'm not expecting any favours, unfortunately, from Arsenal tomorrow night. So, I think we can write off, well, I'm certainly writing off a derby win in the first game back. Um, but yeah, I think... I think in general, what we've seen, I've watched a lot of the Bundesliga games since that's restarted and in general, the better teams have won and Liverpool are a lot, lot better than Everton and they're a lot, lot better than Crystal Palace. Um, and they've obviously, you'd expect them to be at the kind of upper end in terms of the physical levels that they'll be at going back into this restart. Um, and obviously the motivation factor is there. They're going to be more fired up than anyone else to go out and get this done. Um, because as much as we don't want to think about it, you just want to get it wrapped up before anything else goes wrong now. Um, so I think they'll get it done in the first two games. Um, what was the second part of your question there? I've completely lost does, it. Does, does, does it mean anything, Joel? Do yeah. you care? It's funny. My, <laughs> I've kind of gone not full circle in this, but I remember writing something near the, near the start after the Atletico game and we knew that we weren't going to be seeing Liverpool play again for a long time, that 
ultimately this was just football and there's something that we had to deal with and there was much more important things going on. Um, I've kind of found over this period, kind of the longer we've gone without it, the more it's kind of emphasised how important it is. Um, and I think it's very easy. I think a lot of people have said throughout this period, you know, the line that, you know, it's only football or it's only sport and stuff. But when you realise when you go that long without it, that kind of, those are the things that a lot of people live for. Um, and, you know, it's not as important as life or death. We know that, the Shankly quote, everyone knows that one. Um, but yeah, to me, it's kind of re-emphasised how much it means. And I think, obviously, it's not going to happen in a way that we want it to happen. But I've, I've kind of long ago accepted that. I think it's funny, you go back to March and the kind of dystopian scenario. I think you messaged us once saying that, you know, the Premier League is going to go behind closed doors. And we were all like, oh, God, that's awful. Uh, we're not going to have that moment now. We're absolutely delighted at the fact we're going to be able to see Liverpool play again at all. Um, so yeah, I think it's going to mean loads. Obviously, I think as well something will probably come on to in in future weeks. But having that motivation that they want to win it again in front of fans next season. So I think this one is just about getting it done, getting that trophy in the cabinet. Because yeah, to go through the kind of I never really thought that the void thing was actually going to happen I think that was pretty obvious from all the meetings that, that was never really something that was being considered but I think we'd all be lying if you said you didn't have a little bit of worry at one point if, if we were going to see the season played out so I think to have gone through that um, sort of slight peril which wasn't there when you know when you're 25 points clear and, and coasting and then you have this sort of completely unexpected yeah wait um, it will I don't want to say it will feel sweeter than it would have done but there's a more a sense of relief that wasn't there to begin with, definitely. There was definitely a flap, wasn't there, when the Dutch decided to just call it off? I, I feel like that was a that was a real day when it was like, nah, let's not let's not start making this a thing. And then the French see the French league did it, but PSG the afternoon went. was was terrifying. I, do you reckon those two leagues now are looking at themselves being like, wait, we did what? Can we can we start back up? Everyone sound. Mbappe, get get back in. Yeah, they must be looking at that and going, you know, yeah. well, we we did jump the gun a little bit too quickly. Yeah. But then, you know, fair play to them. They're probably thinking yeah. they're probably looking at like they're probably looking at the Bundesliga now and going, couldn't be bothered with that, you know. Yeah. I just I, I just absolutely disinfectants on balls. Nah, not not for me. <laughs> um, it's interesting you say, Joel, about sort of like the the, the moving into the next season and, and sort of that having that sort of um that thing to go for next season having that incentive ollie do you, do you feel like the, the, it's going to be both an emotional and a physical thing this then if, if liverpool can wrap this up as, as quickly as possible um it it, 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 all, it just becomes about next season you know i know yeah. joel wrote something about the, the the records that can still be broken um but i don't know about you but i just don't feel klopp will care i think klopp would, would rather give harvey elliott's um, 100 minutes than Liverpool win 100 points. I agree. I think they're absolutely looking at it as like one long season now. In the middle of it, they'll pick up the trophy one time, but the aim is to go and get it the next time in front of the fans, hopefully, if that's there. And if you just look at it coldly, this is one of the best things that could happen to them in terms of having a dynasty or having like a long run where it doesn't disintegrate pretty quickly. One, you just get, like you said, the um, the emotion not of it being almost taken away or just the rub of the feeling of having it with the fans after so long. But they're just going to have a better chance to use load management or figure out a schedule of how do you play three games if, if they really 
um, shorter next season or however they try and set the timetable for that. They're just going to have an advantage where they can try and experiment different things that other teams that are scrapping for points are just not going to be able to do. Um, so I think that it will, in a, in a strange way, really help them in the long run and they'll just view it as one long season now. It's going to be weird, isn't it, Dan? Even though we've been talking about this, it's it's, it's going to be strange. Yes, it is. Um, it's going to be our own measure of um, normality, I think, applied. But I think for us, I think we've probably got it easier than many in that we have this this thing to go and do. We have this achievement to go and to go and make our own after 30 years. I think this is Liverpool's most important title win in, in the history, to be honest. I think given everything that's gone on, I mean, I know we, we've just been talking then about whether we felt or not it was actually ever in danger. I I went every Friday just thinking, OK, we've survived a week without it not being null and void. And that must have lasted, it felt like it lasted an eternity, but it must have lasted a good six weeks. And I don't think it was without um, justification. And mainly because we were getting no sound bites from the Premier League and nothing seemed to be changing for so long. Um, I think this could only happen to Liverpool. That's the other thing. <laughs> Is that you know this is this is this is quintessential not to take anything away from what is it you know a, a true devastating health crisis, but this is quintessential Liverpool in the sense that it needed some adversity, it needed some kind of peril attached for it to be for it to be sort of um, native to to what we're used to, and I think it'll be a huge let off. And I think it'll be a huge that off for the players and the supporters in their own environments. But I think that I think that there is then that desire to bring it all together as one. But when the books are written on this in years to come and when the, the interviews are given about this time, I don't think it should be lost on any of us just, just how big this title win is and how we should damn right we should celebrate it, by the way. Damn right we should we should do everything in our power to 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 embrace every sinew of it because it's ours and because it's going to be ours for for the history books in terms of the way in which it was written. So so Klopp's right when he says we'll have our moment and we don't care how we look when we have it. Just like to put a disclaimer on what Dan said there, all of that absolutely asterisks. Um, with two metres distance between them. <laughs> <laughs> I would say as well, I th I've written this before, but as we get further away, I do think Leicester away will just become the moment. And that's what I'm having trouble with, with my own emotions as we get back to play here. Is it's going to be two games. So it's going to be four, was it four or five days? I, I feel like, am I going to be faking it if I get emotional now? Because I kind of, I've accepted it so long ago. And I, yeah. my real emotional day was Boxing Day. It was Leicester away. I was like, oh, wow, it's actually happening. I've said that so many times. And now it's actually, this is the one, finally. And then we'll, I don't know how you guys feel, but on that day, now, I don't think there'll be tears now because it's just been so accepted. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. I've had a lot of Liverpool have won the league nights this season. You know, it's sort of yeah, even yeah. even the Brighton game where Allison gets sent off and Adrian comes on and they hang on. That was a massive one because I think City drew two two with Newcastle earlier that day. There was just loads and loads and loads of games like that. You know, Boxing Day was a massive one. Man United the home, Leicester even. You know, Leicester at home was it was a big one. That last minute penalty. There's just so many of those games. Even Bournemouth to a degree. You know, that was the last time Liverpool were at Anfield in a Premier League game. They just had the, you wouldn't say a wobble, 
But they, they had just been, you know, sort of beaten by Watford, beaten by Chelsea. And it was just kind of like, well, you know, the, yeah, they will win it. But if they were to lose this, it's going to be a little bit more uncomfortable than they wanted to. They go 1-0 down, come back to win 2-1. Goal cleared off the line by Milner, all of that sort of thing. It's interesting because with the Champions League, it's that moment, isn't it? It's that sort of moment of elation. And it, obviously it all builds up beforehand. But when Origi puts that, that goal in, it's it, it's that moment, that moment of release. You know, there was a real possibility there that Liverpool win their first Premier League title in 30 years, not in the dramatic way people expected it, not in the way, you know, Aguero and, 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 and anything like that, but rather passing the ball around the back, 3 0 up against Crystal Palace. And there would have been a you know, would have been an incredible moment at Anfield, you know, everyone would have been singing champions and and, and now you're gonna believe us. Would have been incredible, you know, would have been a really good night out, really good party. But as you say, Ollie, it feels like it's just been one big title procession and, and, and that's be you know, because the twenty five points clear. Um so apart from maybe them when they would receive the trophy against Chelsea and when they would maybe have the last game of the season against Newcastle in any potential record they broke, it would have been a bit of a strange thing just to watch this procession play out. Old school reds, sorry to jump in, old school reds will tell you that winning a league title is a body of work and it comes over a certain period of time and and I think I think what struck me is it's not it's not a it's not an actual football moment, i.e. it's not like a last minute goal that makes you think that's when we've won it. For me, it's the moment that you realise that you're better than everyone else. Hmm. And for me, oddly, mine was Salzburg away. In that, after Salzburg away, I just sat back and said, this team's mentality is, it won't be beaten. Salzburg away was the biggest banana skin in, in of a game in the last 10 years for anyone. You know, it was it was there to be to be rolled out. And, and Liverpool have made it that way. But they, they were primed to be knocked out the Champions League year after winning it. And all the headlines were written, you know, the, the lad who's getting lauded as, as the most potent striker in Europe was was giving it the big one about what he was going to do and what he wasn't. And we just went one 2 nil, and we completely dominated. And, and that was the moment for me. I actually got a bit emotional after the game and thought, I'm, I'm watching something, forget football, I'm watching a group of people surpass what I could expect out of anyone as human beings in terms of a mentality and an approach. And, I think that's what wins you the league title is when you realise you're better than everyone else. Just to say, um, just sorry to jump in as well, where but like with, I think it's a thing that everyone's got their own sort of moment. The Leicester one, I think that Ollie points out to on Boxing Day is perhaps the most kind of momentous one for everyone. Obviously, United at Anfield with the Allison and the Salah moment there. Uh, but mine was another weird one. I Dan picked Salzburg there, but like mine was almost the period between Leicester on Boxing Day. And kind of those first few fixtures at the end of December going into the new year and like really sort of mundane wins that people won't remember. I remember watching the Wolves 1-0 at Anfield with the goal that was disallowed, the Mane one, and the Sheffield United, which, which I think people see is just kind of Liverpool were expected to win those games and they won 1-0 and 2-0 and it wasn't that spectacular. But that was just as important as beating Leicester because... Those games came in such quick succession with so little rest in between. And I think once they sort of cruised through, we've seen almost every year, really, in January, they've got a bit of a wobble under Klopp. And this time they just sort of, they, they did the Leicester thing after the Club World Cup and they just came back and they you know, they did Wolves, they did Sheffield. And then I think it was United Spurs, West Ham away, Wolves away again after that. And I think, yeah, it was those, I think, 
sort of less glorious, less spectacular wins that will kind of will be glossed over, but sort of like Dan says, are all part of that kind of the body of work, which I think just shows how far ahead they are of the rest. Um, and I think the other thing to point out in all of this is that Liverpool weren't guaranteed to get their moment anyway. It's quite possible that they would have just won the league with Man City drawing at home to Burnley or someone like that. And we just watched that and the clock ticks down um, and it's one all at the Etihad and that's it. We get our moment then. So we were never guaranteed to have this spectacular finale anyway. See, I, I, I kind of want that to happen now. That, that That's <laughs> sort of where I'm at. I want Sean Dykes to get a 1-0 at the Etihad, a Liverpool champions. And it's just the case of great. You know what I mean? I'm I'm, yeah. I'm watching it in my trackies, just like I would have been. It's crazy, isn't it? The, like, the, the, the difference in conversations before all of this happened, you know, pre-COVID. And, and, and one of the legitimate discussions was Man City versus Burnley's on at three o'clock on a Saturday. Where are we going to watch it? Do you know what I mean? If Liverpool can win the league, yeah. if City drop points against Burnley, where are we going to watch it? Because I'm not watching it on a dodgy fire stick. You know, I'm watching <laughs> it somewhere on a dodgy fire stick in a pub, at least. You know? <laughs> it's, um, so, yeah, so, I, yeah. I think that's fair enough. Um, just have really they, have they confirmed yet whether they're going to do the social distanced uh, trophy lift? Because if they do that, I, I'm out on that. Yeah, I'd rather not win it. Football, yeah. Really bad. <laughs> it's... It's, yeah, it's it's like watching Black Mirror via football. <laughs> it's just not um really quickly, Ollie, was was there was there a moment for you where you sort of other than the obvious ones or was there was there a light bulb moment or was it just No, a, I think you know, like Joel said, that that the Wolves away one now you mentioned that as a big one because it's just like it's almost a combination of what they both said. It's the relentless mentality. We've never had a side ever that just has they've always had a teams that can get up for the big moment match winning players, great days at Anfield, but just the relentlessness of kind of those mid-era Fergie teams where it's just like they just cannot lose. And everyone is now gathering ready for them to lose, all excited, everyone rooting against you, and just they do not let it happen. And I think that's the the hallmark of the team. And we just never have had a team like that. Very Thanos uh, and the Avengers, isn't it? It's also, <laughs> you know, inevitable. Because that's what I felt like when Firmino scored that. It was just like, you know, surely, I, I don't know what the record was at that point. I think it was probably 21-1-0. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, 21-2-0 was absolutely fine. You know, what Wolves are giving Liverpool a really good game. You know, it, it could have gone either way. And then Firmino just pops up with seven minutes to go and scores that goal. And it's like, this is this is unfair. Like, it's almost like this this isn't this isn't really fun anymore. It's like, it's a cheat. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, it's a cheat on the game. Um, good chat, lads. Um, last thing then, um, before we go for this episode, just in general around the, the Premier League, uh, have you got any sort of things that you think you're going to see? You know, sort of, I know we're talking a little bit about what's Guardiola going to do tactically? Um, is, is, there, is there a team that's going to turn up and be like the Monsters out of Space Jam? You know, what 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 are we looking at here in terms of what what, what are the big surprises going to be? What, what What's the surprising things you're expecting? One thing I'm really interested in is this Aston Villa situation because I think they're going to fire the manager at some point. And you've got this really weird national conversation that's going to happen about should you be firing people during COVID? Why did they not do it when they had a three-month break? How does he actually uh, implement a new philosophy at a time when they've got all this distancing going on? So someone is going to sack a coach down the stretch to try and save the season, I think. Um, And that's going to be really bizarre. I don't look forward to the conversation, by the way, because that would be brutal. But Do you reckon they just send a text? Yes. The chairman's what? like, Christian Pearslow's just socially distanced. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just sort of, uh, 
Just, just John Terry will come in. John Terry will come in with his shinies on. That's how he'll know. John Terry's pulling his shin pads up. <laughs> that's what'll happen, by the way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Nailed that. That's not a wild take. That's an absolutely no. nailed uncertainty. Um, I mean, I'm really interested in general about how Team have adapted to this whole period, training wise, tactically. Um, you know, you, you back Liverpool, you've got that, you've got that confidence in Liverpool that they will, they will have done everything to the to the lesser in terms of they know exactly how to get the most out of them from a sports science point of view and and all of that kind of thing. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see if if, if maybe. There's a team maybe a little bit lower down. I mean, I don't think there's many bad managers in the league anymore. You look at the, you look at the managers who it who are sort of in that relegation dogfight, and you, you look like Graham Potter, who's meant to be a really, you know, progressive manager. You look at I mean Hassan Hootel to a degree, but I mean they're not really in in a in a dogfight. Um, but there's going to be someone somewhere. I mean Nigel Pearson. I know you're a big fan of him, Ollie, but there's there's going to be a, a, a team somewhere that's dropped off because they just haven't had the clue how to how to deal with this and how to train players. I'm interested to see what impact just the communication has. We've we've written about the Kimmich quotes about how different it is and how you can actually hear each other and hear the manager. And will someone get caught out who's considered a great tactician who becomes somewhat of a fraud because now his players can actually hear him and the, <laughs> what he's actually deciding to do in the game is not. You know, having the impact they want. Are there players who just, you know, not transform their game but go to a different level because they don't deal so well with having the fans around or because the two centre-backs are really good at communicating but they often can't hear each other or they don't do well with communicating through body language as opposed to actually speaking. So I think that kind of stuff will be interesting to find out. I'm really interested by it, by the acoustics of it. I think you can, from the snippets we've got of Liverpool in the, the games they played against each other and Blackburn, you can hear, you can sort of hear the press as much as see it now, you know, you can hear that the, when that moment is sort of simulated in training onto a pitch, you hear it, you hear the jo- the goal from the likes of of Linders and, and people on the pitch and stuff like that. And I think Liverpool will be one of the most, uh, the one of the most vocal. I think it's, I think for me, there's, there's, there's no surprise that, you know, we're heading into a Merseyside derby with, Touchwood, no injuries, and Everton uh, are basically walking around Stanley Park looking for people who can throw a pair of boots on. Um, that will probably have a, a younger average age than the squad they've got now. Um, so I'm not to, trying to disparage our, our, our neighbours across the road in any way, but I do think that there is, when we talked about Salah at the top of the show and, and average ages and stuff like that, conditionally, I think we're far, far ahead of of the the majority if not all of the league in terms of how we prepare um and, and i think that that will will fit into things like mentality also so i think that's what will give us the edge and i think it'll it'll ensure that we get the job done soon as there's something interesting around ancelotti isn't there you know I, I, we don't really want to talk about the derby because you know there, there will be other shows on, on the blood red channel which you'll be able to listen to um but we might as well just touch upon it a little bit here guys um with Ancelotti it is interesting because it could go one or two ways I mean I don't know what you reckon Joel but I could see him either pulling off an absolute tactical masterstroke he's done it before with Napoli you know he sort of plays that three at the back and, and that's how he keeps money and Salah quiet but at the same time he, he might have just been going absolute you know sort of head deep into Netflix and has rocked up a Finch farm and has just sort of gone I'm, I'm a good manager 
you play for me, I'll give you the good team, so off you go. Because they're not a bad team. You know, Everton are not a bad team. They're on paper, they're a decent team. But it's just that, you know, as Dan says, I think there's maybe a couple of warning signs there. And they've always sort of certainly in recent seasons been concerned about the level of, of injuries. You know, the fans, I know that some of the fans sort of can't believe how many injuries they've had. But it just, it's going to be interesting to see what sort of thing Ancelotti's been doing in, in lockdown. Yeah, I saw something the other day saying, I can't remember how many, but it's about three or four of their sort of supposed defensive midfielders. So I think like the likes of Delph, Gabamin, um, there's at least a couple of others, but basically they don't have anyone to, to cover their defence and the defence is not very good as it is. So I don't know if you're going to end up with a situation where Ancelotti's going to have to play like Tom Davis and Sigurdsson in front of a back four, which just makes you think, I mean, yeah, I dread to I, think what we're going to do to them. If, if they line up like that, um, I think the other really interesting thing is, thankfully, it is at Goodison, which obviously was very much in the balance for a while. Um, but I think you'll see very starkly there what kind of impact that has on the match because we, I know our home record against Everton under Klopp has been generally brilliant, but it feels like if we only won once there under Klopp, I think it was the Mane, Mane. Uh, the Mane 94th minute winner, and since then they've they've been horrible games, generally. Nil, that's, nil. The only, that's the only goal since the free yeah. three. Nil nils when not a lot has happened. Um, really so general. Just the one one, the Ings. Ings one one, yeah. Yeah, really frustrating games. Obviously, there was the one last season um, where we, we had the chances to win, but Salah uh, just didn't want to score that day. Um, I think the other thing that a couple of people have spoken about in terms of the, the no fans thing as well is that how it might benefit some players that we don't necessarily think so some players who might sort of buckle under the pressure as such um but when there's no one there and effectively we, we speak about the training ground feel um as a negative thing but maybe for some players not having 50,000 or it's not be 50,000 goodison but loads of people screaming at him basically every time he's on the ball might make some players come out of their shell a little bit more um i'm really yeah I am intrigued. I think Everton's injury thing is what kind of makes me think, even if both teams are a little bit rusty, I think just, I mean, I'm going off the basis of our game against uh, Blackburn, but we did look in decent... decent <laughs> Those uh, Champions League contenders. <laughs> yeah, um, I think that they look pretty sharp, and I think... Yeah. And Dottie can be the best tactical manager in the world, but if he's not got, if he's not got the players... Um, I think we'll have too much, um, and I think, as I said, the motivation will be there to go out and get it done asap. So it's kind of, it's kind of uh, so win win for Liverpool. They have a win, obviously, which is which is great. If they, if they were to lose, then it completely and utterly blows Everton's argument that this season doesn't matter out the water. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because if they ever if they ever did celebrate the the first derby within ten years, the the easy rebuttal would be, um, yeah, but um, Liverpool won the league. Uh, and there's no, you know, if there's an asterisk against Liverpool's title, there's an asterisk next to your dad. <laughs> um, the, other, the other strange thing about it as well is the fact that it's, it's an evening game. It was going to be a Monday night game, wasn't it, before yes. yeah. in March, which obviously would have been under the lights at Goodison, whereas now we're having an evening kickoff on a Sunday night where it's going to be broad daylight. The, the, whole longest day, the longest day? The longest day? Yeah, which is just going to be. It's going to be, be like when it finishes at half nine. It's going to be crazy. Yeah. Uh, I'll just leave the final word for, for Dan because I, I reckon I'll, I'll tee him up here because we have spoken about this before. But I actually think Everton might benefit from no fans in the Zara because I think that's been a big contributing factor for them. 
um, yep. over the past couple of years. I think I think that crowd certainly helps them sometimes, but I, th- I certainly think it hinders them a lot of the time, certainly in derbies. Yeah, if they've got a demon, it's Liverpool. Um, we know that from God, countless name name the derby, Curtis Jones being the latest. Um, but I also think it could help Ancelotti in the long run. In that, if he's if he's good at one thing, Ancelotti, he's good at being pragmatic. The thing, the thing that I I loved about him so far, just from a neutral point of view, was that when they threw that two 0 lead away against Newcastle in the last thirty seconds. That he walked in into them and basically said, "Well, I've lost the Champions League final after being three 0 down. What are you so scared of?" That's very Jurgen Klopp in its in its approach. And I think if he's if he's going to maintain that, and he's going to he's going to use Everton as a long term project, which we don't know or or not whether he is. I think the best thing that he could adopt in terms of a mindset for his players and his board and his supporters through communication would be saying that we could get him at five million. But it's part of something bigger. It's part of us learning. It's part of using this time to try and find ways of improving the squad and, and, and looking at different ways of playing and trying to basically get out the root out the players that aren't going to make it. And if they if they are, I mean, let's have it right. They should be able to take that on the chin. They've, they've suffered every which type of form of humiliation before from Liverpool. So, so you know, getting getting out of that home isn't gonna isn't gonna do any more. They want to fight, but without the fans there, like you say, Chris, it's it is a possibility for them to just sort of let's use this time to to deeply root out where we're going wrong and, and try and use it to put it right. And and I think they've got the perfect excuse really with injuries. So so we'll see. I think you know I think Andre Gomez doesn't make forward passes you know without the fans and that's not to disparage him but you know he doesn't get the ball. I'm game to disparage him by the way <laughs> the most overrated footballer in the Premier League possibly or well you don't really... scored about six I think he scored about six goals his whole career he is criminally overrated <laughs> we were doing really well then Sam we were doing really really well. <laughs> I want to shut up now. I forgot we were uh, on a podcast and not on a morning call. <laughs> uh, I mean, maybe we should rename the podcast just the morning call. I don't. I, I think legal will have a problem with some of the morning calls that we have. Um, so yeah, that is the first ever episode of Liverpool. Maybe the first ever episode. We did have the draft, didn't we? we did, so yeah. Maybe one point five. You know, talking about overrating midfielders, that was when Ollie picked Inst and then Morello. I'll go back into the archives for that one. Don't be getting on Nelka, that was a great show. It was yeah. a good show. Um, so thank you very much. You know, please tell us, you know, your thoughts about this podcast. We're going to be doing it every week. Uh, hopefully the four of us. Uh, we've got Kai Delaney behind the booth today, um, who's, who's sat there and and listen to us waffling, so a big thanks to him for, for sorting this out as well. Um, so, yeah, uh, all's left to say from myself, Christine Walsh, from Joel Rabinovitz, uh, Oliver Connolly, Dan Morgan, uh, stay safe, stay well, and enjoy the Premier League season. Uh, we'll be back next week. Take care. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.